Welcome to Aircrew Interview, I'm Mike. In this episode, we chat with Kirsty Murphy as she chats about flying and instructing on the Hawk T1, flying the Tornado GR4, being part of the Red Arrows, which to date, she's the only female pilot to have joined the team, and her current role, flying with the Blades, where you can find them at theblades.com. So if you like the channel, want to keep us going, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview, where you can help us out for as little as $1 per month. Or you can also donate by going to aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate. Thank you and enjoy. So Kirsty, when did you first become interested in aviation? Um, my father was in the Air Force as a navigator on um, Buccaneers and Tornadoes and Vulcans. Um, so I kind of have had aviation in the family for a long time. Used to get a few air shows and things, but I think it was probably when I started secondary school and my holidays were such that I had longer holidays than uh, mum and dad and I used to go and hang out on the squadron in the summer holidays. And that was when I really felt like aviation was very much part of what I understood and what felt very natural to me. Yeah. So what year did you join the RAF? I joined in 2000, is when I um, graduated from initial officer training, but I actually joined the Air Force a little bit before that because I was in the University Air Squadron and did my flying training as part of that uh, before I actually joined the Air Force in 2000. Oh, right. So could you tell us some of the aircraft you started training on? Yeah, so I actually had a flying scholarship, which was my first experience of flying. So I was 16 then, and I flew the PA-38, the Tomahawk. Um, and then when I did my flying training in the Air Force, I started off on the Bulldog, which is a single-engine propeller aircraft, moved on to the Takano, which is single-engine turboprop, and then on to the mighty Hawk T-1. Mm -hmm. uh, and that kind of got me through to the end of fast jet training. Mm -hmm. And after, after this, after your training, you went on to instruct on the Hawk. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, so I was um, really fortunate. I'd done the course as a student and then they select a few people who then go back and get taught to be an instructor and then teach that course that you've just done. So it's quite an early stage of your career to be an instructor. So it's, it's quite a, it's a flattering thing to be asked to stay, although all your friends go off to the front mm -hmm. line and you kind of want to be doing that mm -hmm. with them. Um, but yeah, the Hawk T1 is a brilliant aircraft to fly um, and instruct on. The students that I was teaching have actually already, they already know how to fly, mm -hmm. but they've never flown a jet before so I was flying I was teaching them how to mm -hmm. sort of get those raw skills that they already have and put them in towards fast jet mm -hmm. flying um, so yeah it was really good fun we did GH so lots of aerobatics circuit lots of academic type maneuvers spinning and stalling we did close formation we did what we call tactical formation which is sort of ways of moving a formation around at low level without being close to each other so maybe a mile apart um, and, uh, and then navigation as well and then when they finish that course they go off and do a tactical course where they learn all more tactics so it was yeah, really good fun, actually. So did you say, uh, stay with the same students the whole way through? You generally get given what we call a primary student, or you're their primary instructor, so you're their main point of contact. But um, just the way the programme works, you don't always fly with them, but you're the one responsible for their training. So you'd keep an eye on who's flown with them and how well have they done mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, and it, depending on which trip you're doing, actually, you have different instructors because you need certain qualifications to do certain trips. So when I first became an instructor, I could teach all the basic stuff, but maybe not some of the more complicated mm -hmm. things. And then by the time I finished my, my instructional tour, I was doing lots of that stuff mm -hmm. and, and not so much of the basic stuff, which the new instructors were then doing. Yeah. So, yeah, you do get to mix around students. So what was the Hawk actually like to fly? Because everyone says it's like a little sports car. Yeah. It's true. The sports car is exactly right, yeah. It's, um, it's very fast. It's manoeuvrable. Um, it's simple, which is what makes it so brilliant for flying training. Um, it doesn't have much kit in it, so you can actually focus on the, the basics of flying. And this is the T1 model that I'm talking about, which is the one I instructed on. Um, so, yeah, it's, it was a real 
sort of favourite of mine for those reasons. Um, I like the simplicity of it, but I like the speed and flying around at low level in a hall. You just can't beat it. Yeah, sounds pretty. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So, could you tell if a student was a natural at flying? Um, it's a really interesting question, actually. You'd get some students who did really well on the course that I was teaching, which is, like I said, quite academic. Um, but then they'd get to the tactical stuff, and when they're required to think a little bit more outside the box and cope with more things going on, then they'd maybe struggle. We'd have maybe another student who didn't really shine doing what we were asking them to do, but then put them in the tactical scenario and they, they really blossomed. So I don't think you could ever particularly write anyone off or think that they were going to be brilliant, um, during my course uh, and people who you thought at the beginning of the course were going to be fine you know would struggle maybe at the end so it was interesting I do remember though one particular student I flew with Martin Pert who is now the leader of the Red Arrows yes. and he was superb mm-hmm. and I do remember landing off his chair thinking oh yeah he probably did that better than me <laughs> <laughs> so some people do stand out yes so how long did you instruct on the Hawk for and did you enjoy it yeah, three years I instructed for and I loved it. It's a, it was a very early stage of my career. I was given quite a lot of responsibility. Um, by the end of my tour, I was leading a three-ship up to, say, to Scotland. We'd stay there for a couple of nights. We'd do all our sorties from Lossy Mouth or something and then come back and I would be responsible in supervising all of that. So it was... Um, it was really great flying. Flying with students is brilliant because they're so enthusiastic mm. and they just want to know everything and be better. So you've got this sort of brilliant audience to impart all the knowledge to. Um, and like I say, having that extra responsibility at an early age in your early stage of your career is, is quite an honour as well. So yeah, I, I look back on that tour with a lot of fond memories. And then you went on to the mighty Tornado GR4. That's so right. Yeah, so what happens is um, I, having been an instructor on that early course, I then needed to go and be a student again and learn all the tactical side of things on the Hawk T1. So I went off and did that course, and then at the end of that course, you basically get graded, and then they sort of allocate you your frontline aircraft on how you've done on that course, obviously dependent on how many spaces there are on all of those aircraft. Um, So I, uh, when I joined the Air Force, I really wanted to fly the Jaguar, that was my goal in life and um, because I'd done this creamy tour I now couldn't go to the Jaguar because they were bringing out of service mm-hmm. so there were no spots so I went um, I got selected to go to the GR4 I had the GR4 and the Harrier as my two options um, I would have loved to have flown the Harrier I think my personality type meant that I was better suited to the Tornado so actually going to the Tornado was the right decision for me yeah so can you tell us something about the initial training you started on, on the GR4 yeah, it's quite interesting because, of course, on your course, when you start on the Tornado, you've got pilots who have never flown the Tornado, but you've also got now a load of navigators who have also never flown the Tornado. Mm-hmm. So you start off separately um, and you do what's called a conversion phase where I used to just fly with pilots and they're teaching me to fly the Tornado, move the wings and you know how the systems work. But quite quickly, you start flying with navigators and no longer pilots and you're looking more at how to operate the aircraft tactically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you start putting your student friends who are on your course with you who are navigators in the back and then both of you are blundering around Scotland together trying to make things work and make it happen um, so it was a really interesting course it was took about um, six months I think I started in the January and I was done by the July it's quite a, a short quick course um, but yeah can you remember your first trip in the GR4? I mean, coming from the Hawk, it must have felt a lot more powerful. Oh, yeah, hugely. I mean, the takeoff roll, two engines with afterburners, it's unlike, it's definitely not like a Hawk at all. Um, I don't actually remember my first trip in the Tornado 
on the OCU, but I was lucky enough to fly in the tornado when I was on the University Air Squadron. Um, and weirdly, I do remember that trip because it was probably, it was so special and so out of my normal day-to-day routine. It's one of those things when you're on a course, actually, you forget sometimes to sit back and just enjoy what you're doing because you're so focused on passing and doing the right thing and learning. Um, so yeah, that first trip is actually a bit of a blur. <laughs> probably was at the time as well. Yeah. So how did the GR4 handle? Very different to the Hawk. So when um, we talk about the Hawk being a sports car and highly manoeuvrable, the Tornado, I sometimes describe it as a double-decker bus, really? which surprises people because it's a jet. Yeah, surely it can't feel like that. But it, it needs to feel like that because um, it's a weapons platform. Um, so it needs to be really stable. So you could fly through the valleys in the Lake District and you sort of feel like you're just going through them like this and you know nothing's going to move you. You don't get bumped around by the air as much as you do in a, in, in a Hawk. But that's what it's designed to do. It goes really fast. Um, it does obviously turn, but doing air combat in it is, is quite, how can I put it, it's interesting as a pilot. It makes you work a bit harder. So designed for a different job, though. So how did you find the wing sweep function on the tornado? Well, once I remembered to use it. <laughs> yeah, no, the aircraft does talk to you, actually, a little bit. When you're, um, when you're speeding up and you've forgotten to move the wings after takeoff, the airframe just starts to vibrate slightly and you can just sense that something's not quite right. And, you yeah. know, if you had forgotten the wings at that point, it's like, oh, wings yeah. back to 45, <laughs> yeah. And the same as if you're in 67, obviously, as you slow down and your wings are that fully swept back, then you're really not producing enough lift yeah. as you slow down. And then you'd start thinking, this is not feeling, oh, God, the wings. <laughs> So, um, yeah, it takes a while to get used to doing, but actually it's one of those things you just becomes natural. You know, you're speeding up, the wings go forward. You know. Yeah, it, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So can you describe the cockpit there for us? Because you came from, a, I'm guessing, an all-analogue gauge from the Hawk to a semi, is it a semi-glass cockpit? What yeah, it? it is, yeah. So you've got some um, TV screens uh, the Tornado cockpit is a very classic cockpit from that era where you look inside and there are buttons everywhere and you think, oh my God, this is so complicated. But actually, one of the boxes is a radio box and yeah, there's 15 buttons on it, but actually all they do is really set the frequency and, mm. and select it, that yeah. kind of thing. So it, it looks amazingly complicated when you look inside, but when you break it down to the individual bits of kit, then it's obviously not, so, um, yeah. not quite so scary <laughs> once you understand what it all does. Um, yeah, so it's a quite a comfortable cockpit compared to the Hawk. It's much roomier, it's much more comfortable, um, and uh, yeah, full of kit. Yeah. <laughs> So where were you based and what squadron were you with? So the OCU was up at Lossiemouth on 15 Squadron and then I got posted to 13 Squadron, unlucky for some but not for me, <laughs> um, which was at Marham. Marham, yeah. yeah. So where about in the UK would you fly? Um, it depended on what we were doing. So the ranges are a couple of ranges that were close to Marham. We used to use a Wayne Fleet and Hull Beach, and they're in the Wash, Lincolnshire Wash. Um, so we'd maybe fly there and do some range work. We'd try not to fly too much low level around Norfolk and Lincolnshire because actually it's quite built up and there are speed restrictions and it's not very useful for tactical. It's great if you want to go A to B, but not if you want to do anything tactical. Mm-hmm. So what we'd often actually do is then fly over high level into somewhere like Wales or the Lake District or, or sort of South. Scotland and then we can do some of our more tactical stuff in those areas Um, there were ranges we used to go to um, and work with the army so do close air support so we'd go high level over um, somewhere to help them and then we'd spend the entire trip Mm -hmm. circling around where they are and then back home so every trip in fact this morning I was looking at my logbook um, to sort of think about my typical trip in a tornado GR4 and there wasn't a single trip that was the same as another one you you think though from a a public perspective there would be 
Like you just doing the same yeah. stuff, yeah. yeah. It was. In, it's actually. I don't think I'd appreciated how varied um, each trip was, and of course, the tornado could carry so many different weapon types that you'd need to be completely familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd do one trip, maybe doing brimstone, another trip doing e-paveway two, another one paveway three, and you know, sometimes doing um, pod work, so surveillancey type things. Sometimes doing CAS, sometimes doing more interceptor or, or sort of attack sorties, um, doing operational low flying which is down at 100 foot um, four ships two ships close formation tactical formation it was just you know <laughs> you can pick and choose almost so yeah, yeah um yeah very very trips it's good and i have to ask this because one of my twitter followers uh, asked me to ask you this uh, did you always fly with the big tanks and the two pods on either wing um w- interestingly lossy mouth and marham had slightly differing thoughts on whether you could we had two different types of fuel tanks you could have on the really big ones and the little ones um, and Marum we always used to have the big ones on and they uh, Lossie used to have the smaller ones on possibly because of the fact that Lossie's obviously right from Scotland so their playground was really close whereas for us we'd always have to transit somewhere um, so yeah we did generally always have the fuel tanks on we occasionally used to take them off to do transit flights um, you can't go supersonic with the ta- tanks on and, and with really anything on the wings so every now and again you'd get a lucky trip where you needed to transit an airframe somewhere and they'd take everything off and you could fly up and uh, go over the sea and go supersonic which was always nice so it wasn't actually supersonic capable with uh, like a fully no no no. no yeah uh, but you would never really need to be going supersonic no, with all that stuff right. hanging on it yeah. <laughs> it would be quite hard <laughs> so did you ever fly on any operations overseas Yes, yeah, so I did Optelic, which is um, which when we were out in Iraq. So we used to fly out of Qatar, um, fly up up the coast into Iraq, and then do sort of a mission up there. And the missions were generally about eight hours long, so really long. And I say the tornado cockpit's more comfortable than the Hawk, mm. but after eight hours, it's not yeah. comfortable at all. Anything after that? Yeah, and we've got G pants on and our normal life jackets on, and then we'd wear a special combat survival waistcoat, which has extra equipment that you might need if you did end up down on the ground and um, by accident. So, um, yeah, it wasn't the most comfortable <laughs> environment. But we, because it's eight hours, we used to essentially do um, two refuels in that as well. So you'd get up there, um, maybe tank straight away, or do a bit of what we would call a vol. So doing a tasking then off to the tanker which is overhead in Iraq but just quite high mm-hmm. um, then go back do some more tasking back tasking and then home again and the whole thing would it's take eight then. hours yeah <laughs> so how, how was it different from flying in the UK well most of it well almost all of it was at high level obviously and um, because there's a, there was a threat there so we you don't want to be at low level unless you had to be um, but also it's it was real everything yeah. you do in the UK is pretend is training um, so it does take on another level of seriousness mm-hmm. makes you think twice about everything you're doing and also you're talking on the radio depending on what we were doing our taskings could vary from say there was a, a convoy going up a road um, or doing a long a, a long transit we would maybe check the road for them using our pods and look and see if there are any IEDs and see if we could identify anything that would put them in danger um, we might do that we might have a group of army US or um, uh, UK or even from somewhere else in the world um, doing a task maybe in a village a, a mission in a village and we would overwatch them and we could warn them if anything was going on that they needed to know about um, and sometimes we were just on the radio talking to people um, in case they needed us and we were just sort of on standby um, so uh, most of that was done at high level looking down in a pod um, and then every now and again we would have to do some low level flying um, something called a show of force which is essentially where we fly very low over the heads of maybe where a load of people are congregating that's making 
that's got some kind of threat level with it. And just the idea of us flying over their heads, they may think that nobody knows that they're there. And they're like, where's that tornado come from? <laughs> so they obviously know we're here, mm-hmm. you know, because they have no idea that we're way above yeah. them watching them. Um, so, and that was flying very low. Mm-hmm. So you had this sort of very high level type stuff and then suddenly you had to be right on your game to be flying low level and those skills, which is why we used to practice it instead in the UK. Mm-hmm. But yeah, very different feel. Was that a lot of pressure over there? Um, having said it, it feels very different because it's serious. You're still also only doing what you have trained for, so it feels familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels different, but it's got that sense of, oh, we're in our processes now, and um, if you got called in to drop a bomb, for example, you know, we have a set of procedures that you needed to follow to make sure that it all worked right, and also to make sure it was the right, t- the right type of target to be um, to be going against um, and so that sense of routine and procedure actually made things feel quite I don't want to say comfortable but I think familiar is probably the right yeah. word so it's not like oh my god we've got to do this yeah. ah! you know actually we went about our business in a very calm way mm-hmm. it was just sometimes after you drop the bomb you'd kind of have this sort of surge of adrenaline of like oh we just yeah. actually dropped the bomb you know probably natural <laughs> yeah exactly but when you're actually doing the job you're so focused on it and you're doing what you know you need to do that mm-hmm. um yeah, it's, it's, I don't think you don't feel the pressure until mm-hmm. maybe afterwards. Awesome. So how long did you spend on the tornado and did you enjoy it? So I was there for three years, um, 06 to 09, and yeah, I loved it. And um, I loved the QFI that I did on the Hawk. Um, and people often ask me which one I preferred. I, they were such different jobs, instructing people compared to doing stuff for real on a front line. It, mm-hmm. it was such a different aircraft, such a different role. Um, and it was so satisfying to be able to be part of that team. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I really enjoyed it. So then something special happened. You managed to become a red arrow. Can you tell us about this? Yes. Um, so I was walking down the corridor in the squadron one day was when I was on the tornado and uh, I noticed the advert was up. Um, and so to get in the red arrows, you have to apply, you have to want to do it. And uh, there's a list of criteria that you have to fulfil. So I went up to the poster to have a look and I'd been on the squadron for about two years by now and, um, and my creamy tour. And I suddenly realised I ticked all the boxes and I'd never realised that I would be in a position where I could join the red arrows if I wanted to and um, I went away and I just had this like seed in the back of my head and I just couldn't get rid of it and I ended up putting my application in um, and then it's, it's quite a long drawn out process they um, select or they sort of pre-select I think they get about 30 people applying every year and then they shortlist um, somewhere around about nine normally who then go out to spend some time with the team and, um, and that's for a whole week and there's various you do a flying test you do an interview you do a media interview um, and then throughout the whole week there are social events going on so they can see what you're like obviously socially because that's really important that you're not a great pilot you also have to do this other side to the job um yeah and then i was lucky enough to have been selected out of the nine that went out on the shortlist it was great so how do you feel when you got that call or email or however you got told um i i do remember kind of screaming down the <laughs> it was amazing i um, we got called into my boss's office and we knew the results were coming out that day so there was sort of a nervous tension around and i walked in and um, and then he just grinned at me and he said you did it and i genuinely didn't think I was going to get in um, most people apply get onto the shortlist do it once um, don't get in and then reapply the next year and then the team know them and they're like okay and then and you generally do better the second year um, so I fully expected to go to the shortlist and just kind of enjoy it as much as I could learn as much as I could so the year after I'd definitely get in so it was it was genuinely a real shock um, and also I got in with my best friend who had gone in exactly the same as me thought he wasn't going to get in at all Mm -hmm. Um, and then we both got in together so it was brilliant 
And do you get told what position you're going to be for uh, the first season? Yeah, so you join the team around about August, September, which is actually the end of the previous season, and you, you essentially fly around with them for that period. And the idea is you can start to absorb some of their procedures and some of the, the things that they do normally, and then you start your actual training at the end of the season, which is kind of October time, or the beginning of the next one, if you like. Um, and yeah, so once we arrived, there was a big ceremony, and everyone gets told their positions for the next year, and that's it. Very cool. Yeah. So how intense? was the training at the beginning? It's really intense. Um, the first trip, I'm not quite sure what I was expecting, but the first trip there's me, um, Ben Plank, my, my friend, and um, the boss, and we sat down to brief, and he said, right, so we're going to start off doing loops. I'm like, right, formation loop? Right, okay, haven't, we haven't done those, you know, I've never done those yet. <laughs> and he's like, no, that's how we do it. And, and we just start off doing loop after loop after loop after loop, and then we progressed on to barrel rolls after barrel rolls after barrel And it just goes on and on. And you fly three times a day, five days a week, um, until PDA pretty much bad weather obviously depending um, and the by the end of the third or fourth week I was coming home from work in the evening I'd sit on the sofa be asleep by half seven I was exhausted mm-hmm. the sort of focus that was required for those 20 minutes for those trips was just insane mm-hmm. um, and it was exhausting but you, you get used to it and then um, yeah and you cope with it better <laughs> So what was, I think it's called, is it Red Suit Day? Yes. What was that like for yourself? It was a bit of an interesting one for us because we had a delayed PDA, which is the Public Display Authority, um, uh, because we'd um, one of our pilots had um, ended up getting injured, so couldn't then fly, so we'd had to bring a new pilot out to replace him. So ours was delayed. So normally that would happen out in Akrotiri at the end of spring training, but actually we'd come back to the UK. We did some more training in the UK and it happened there. So it was held at, at Scampton, which was really rare. It doesn't normally happen like that. It was quite nice to be at Scampton to get the red suit um, and it feels really weird because you've been wearing a green suit all winter you you only wear your red flying suit when you've been given the PDA and um, it was quite amazing to keep looking down and catching sight of the red suit go oh my god I'm a red arrows pilot <laughs> so what was it like being the first female on the team yeah it's an interesting question um, when I was thinking about applying there were quite a few girls that I knew who were pilots who hadn't applied who were perfectly capable of it I've no doubt and I asked them why they hadn't applied and they said to me, I don't want to be the first girl on the Red Arrows. They don't want all that extra pressure and, all, and everything that goes with it. And I understood that, but equally I thought, I can't allow that to be the reason that I don't do something. So I decided that I was going to just get on with it, get my head down. And actually, when you watch the Red Arrows, you have no idea which pilot's in which aircraft generally. So no one would really know which one was me. It was only when we're on the ground. And I thought that was a you know that was the right way to be if I thought about it like that then I wouldn't have any of the perceived added pressures and I was really lucky I was supported by the squadron a lot and we did obviously the public were quite excited to hear a girl was going to be on the reds so we did one big media day when it was announced that I was in the team and essentially everyone was asked well you come and do your interviews and you're filming everything today and from then on leave her alone she's not going to be doing separate interviews because when you're in the Red Arrows you're part of a team you're not an individual Mm -hmm. so they kind of allowed that to happen for one day only and then that was that was it Mm -hmm. and that was great because that allowed me then just to get on with the job really Mm -hmm. and like I say I've I'd worked in the Air Force for quite a few years by then and I'd worked alongside a lot of the people that were in the Red Arrow. So to us, it was nothing weird or unusual. Every time I went to a new air show, someone would go, oh my God, there's a girl in the Red Arrows and I'd have to go through the whole thing again. Um, But yeah, hopefully when people were watching the display, they couldn't tell which one was me anyway. So can you remember your first public display? I do. Uh, And it was at RAF Bryce Norton, actually. And it was one of their family's days. And the reason I remember it is because I've got a photo, which I still have. Um, and we landed, did the display. And I remember my heart really racing as we ran in. And then as soon as we put that smoke on for the first time, I, 
the rest of the trip just happened because you've done the show so many times by then that you're, you're you know you're doing what you know um and then we landed and then we went and did a bit of sort of chatting to the public and these three girls came over they're all red-headed as well which i thought was great and they came over and they all hugged me and they went we want to be red arrows pilots too and i just thought wow i hadn't you know, I'd had this very rational pr- thought process about being a girl in the Red Arrows and doing this one media day. And then, and then I realised, you know, these young girls saw it and thought it was a cool thing. I was like, that's, that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. You know, if I can just keep doing that, then I'm really happy. That must have been a special moment. It was really special. And I've got this picture of me crouching next to them and still having my photo. And I've still got it, yeah, and I remember the picture being taken. It was brilliant. So do you have a favourite manoeuvre you uh, did on the team? Yeah, it's hard. It's always hard to pull one out, and the show as well split into two. You do the first half, which is all the big graceful manoeuvres and the big shapes, and then the second half is the dynamic stuff. But the one I really remember, which I used to fly my second year, I can't remember the name of the shape. It was something like Concorde or Blackbird, um, and then myself and Eggman would be on the extremities, and we pulled up into a loop, and then we'd both do rollbacks, and then end up further back in the formation and finish off the loop there. Um, and it, it was a challenge to match those rollbacks between us and make it look good but equally it was quite a dynamic thing to be doing so yeah I do look back at that one and I was always really pleased when we'd nailed it Mm -hmm. which wasn't every time (laughs) sadly I've always been interested you know the way they speak in the cockpit how did you get used to that um, practice really um, as I said earlier we used to spend a bit of time with the team before you actually start flying with the team and the, that's the whole point of that is to absorb all these procedures there are, there's a whole book of procedures that Red Arrows use but they've all been developed over a very long period of time um, and they're all to keep the, the, the team safe so they're all vitally important that you understand them and you do them correctly. The radio calls are a classic thing. So um, the boss will tell the formation what the next shape is going to be. And then that's acknowledged by every single aircraft that's going to move. So that could be two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It could just be, you know, three and four. Um, but that has to happen exactly right before anybody moves. And if it's worked right, then everybody then does what they need to do. If, if it breaks down in any way, someone maybe didn't hear the radio call or something else had happened, then nobody moves. And that's what keeps the team safe. So, yeah, it sounds... It, you almost end up with, like, a song or a poem of the words that happen in a display. And I, you know, in those first couple of months, I'd dream about it. You know, I was having all these radio conversations in my head. But it's, um, it's key to what they do. And actually, even now flying with the blades, all of our procedures are based on those very same radio calls we used to make in the Reds. Mm-hmm. So what uh, positions did you fly on the team? So I flew as three and five, which are both on the left-hand side, and then I did nine. I started training as nine, but I didn't do the full season. Mm-hmm. And did you have a favourite show you displayed at? I do have one that really stands out. I should point out that whenever you do a display in the Red Arrows, unless you're the boss, you're generally not looking at anything other than the boss, the leader. So I've flown over some amazing sites and not seen any of them because I'm just staring at number one and doing what I need to do. But I do. there's two I remember. One was um, in my first year, we flew over Athens, and as we ran in crowd rear, the boss said, okay, this is unusual, everyone can have one quick glance out of the window. And I sort of looked down and I could see the Acropolis and then I looked back and I was like, ah! <laughs> and then we're into the show. So I really remember that because I actually got to see something. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one I remember actually was Windermere. It was the last day before our summer leave. Um, so we were all really looking forward to that. We displayed, I think, in Southport in the morning. It was a beautiful afternoon. It was a late show, so it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And unusually for the Lake District, it was really still, super smooth air. Um, 
and that show just ran on rails just you know there were so few mistakes it was brilliant it was, it was close to perfection as you could get and we all got back to Scampton and then we're all off on leave and I do remember just thinking oh, I've got the coolest job in the world yeah, definitely. <laughs> so what do you think was the more special thing about being there part of the team um, there's so many parts to it. I mean, the flying from a professional, personal point of view was brilliant. It's such a challenge, not just to attain it, that level of flying in the first place, but to maintain it and to keep doing that and getting better and better throughout the year. Um, so the flying side of it was great, but also the people got to meet, whether that's famous people which, and celebrities, which is fun from my point of view to meet them. But also, for example, um, pre-Christmas, we always used to go down to Great Ormond Street Hospital and we'd go around and just chat to all the children in our red flying suits. And it's moments like that that really make you very humble and remind you of who you are and the red, you know, what the red flying suit means to a lot of people around the country. Um, and that's a really special thing to be part of that. So how long do you spend on the reds? It was about two and a half years, two seasons, 2010 and 2011 season. It's really hard work. I'm, you know, I look back thinking it was brilliant. There were times when I thought, God, I wish I'd just done a really boring job or done something else, you know, without a doubt. There are highs and lows. Um, it's really tough. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Like I say, it's su- an amazing honour to wear the red flying suit. So what did you do after the Red Arrows? Um, I got promoted out of the Red Arrows, so I went and did what we call a staff college course um, for the next rank, and then I went and worked in headquarters, which was in charge of all the fast jet flying training, so the Hawks that I'd already flown, the Tucanos, but also we looked after the Red Arrows, so it was really nice to be able to give back by having been in the team to be able to help them out with some of the things that they needed assistance with from a headquarters point of view, from the administrative stuff. Um, So I did that for a few years and then I left the Air Force in 2015. As people can see, we're behind, there's a blade behind us. So can you tell us about how you became part of the team? Yeah, so the, the Blades is a, um, a four-ship aerobatic team of extra 300s, which is one of these. Um, but we're made up from ex-Red Arrows pilots. So that's our sort of heritage. So the company itself started in 2008, um, an ex-Red Arrows leader and a Harrier, an ex-Harrier boss. Um, and they had noticed that people want to fly with the Red Arrows, but you cannot do that. It's impossible. But they thought they could set up something which would recreate that idea of being able to fly with the Red Arrows by using ex-Red Arrows pilots and an aircraft that they be, was interesting to fly. Um, and they set up the company. Um, and the best thing about flying this aircraft rather than the Hawk, other than the fact it's obviously quite a lot cheaper to, to run, um, is it's, it's fully aerobatic. So we could do the close formation, smooth stuff, but we can do some really crazy aerobatics that you cannot do in a Hawk because it's a jet and you need constant airflow down the engine. Um, so when I left the Air Force, I was looking for another job and I looked at lots of different options, project management, um, and I just kept coming back to 2XL as this idea that I could actually be a Blades pilot. So I approached them and here I am. Mm-hmm. So what year did you join? That was in 2016. And um, what position were you in at that point? So I joined as three again. Three? So, wow. yeah, it's, it, people probably don't realise flying on the left and the right is very, very different. So to me, a right-hand turn always involves going up and right because mm-hmm. I'm on that left-hand yeah. wing. Um, when you're two, a right-hand turn always involves going down and right, and that's now instinctive. So flying on the opposite side is a little bit like getting on one of those bikes where they've switched the handlebars around and they work the other way around. It's actually quite difficult. Mm-hmm. So it's quite nice to, when you start a new formation team is to, um, to join on the side that you know best. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I've been three, which suits me down to the ground. Yeah. So how many aircraft actually fly in the team? We've got five airframes, but we've got four aircraft in the display. And I would like to know something about your training. Was it difficult coming from the Reds or was it the same? 
Um, similar, intensity actually the same. So I joined in May and I was displaying in July and I was looking at my logbook this morning and the intensity of the flying that I did here in those two and a half months was the same as the reds but obviously it was shorter. And the reason it's shorter is because the blades relies on the fact that I can already fly a loop in close formation and also my sort of fundamental principles and thought processes on maybe how to react to an emergency or how to do formation moves are all instinctive because I've had three years training essentially in the reds. So who creates the routines each year? Um, it's a bit of a joint process. Obviously, the leader gets priority because yeah. it's his team and yeah. he can do what he wants, um, frankly. But he always asks for ideas. So we had a lot of changes last year. We had a new rebranding. So we're all in sort of navy blue and red now. Um, last year, or the year before that, sorry, we were sort of black and orange. So quite exciting times. And it seemed a really good time to really sort of change up the, the sequence. So Andy Evans, um, Blade One, definitely led on that. And we sort of inputted a few bits that we wanted to change. But it's nice. With the way we've developed the, the display, we can actually continually tweak it and put little changes in which is great because we can then make the keep moving the display forwards as people can see in the background it's a really nice uh, livery and uh, so who creates that who designs that Again, a bit of a team process. This one's a really interesting livery because um, this year as well, uh, we had the exciting news that Ben Murphy, who's our head of department and was Blade One last year, um, was going to have a Blade racing team in the Rebel Air Race. So he bought an aeroplane to do that and he needed a design scheme, which he kind of came up with a bit himself with some help from some professional companies and ended up having this aircraft done up with stickers and paint and looked amazing. And then we looked at it and said, oh, we, we, the aero team should really kind of reflect the racing team as well. So very rapidly, um, we ended up with five aircraft that look very similar to Ben's. Now, he, fly, he doesn't fly an edge. He flies an... Uh, doesn't fly an extra, he flies an Edge 540, but it's very similar in that it's tail wheel, um, similar kind of design. So we tweaked it to make it work for our aircraft, but we now essentially match the racing team, so we've got also one corporate brand. Um, as you can see, we really wanted to, in the race team, we really wanted to promote the fact that we're a British team, so we've got the huge Union Jack on the tail, but it's also really important for us to be able to represent our sponsors. So we've got the RF Benevolent Fund, which is a military charity, obviously linked to the RAF, which is very close to all of our hearts because we're all ex-Air Force. Um, so we've got them on the back, and then we've got Zyrad Cables and Aerobytes as well, who are the two main sponsors, um, and they support both the aerobatics team and the um, race team. And then finally on my flying suit, we've got Aston Martin Cambridge, which we all like having as a sponsor. <laughs> We're hoping they're going to give us cars at some point, but not yet happened. <laughs> so how many air shows do you fly a year, and how long is the actual display? And the display is 12 minutes long, and we do 30 manoeuvres in that time. So you can imagine how full and you know, how fr frantic it is um, flying, which is why I love flying the display. So we do 30 manoeuvres in 12 minutes, which makes it a really dynamic and quick-moving um, moving show. So we start off the display doing very much the formation bits and pieces, so a bit more of the graceful, smooth stuff where we're all together. And then we split up, and this is where we're different to the Red Arrows, is we can split up and then start doing some of our singleton aerobatics. Um, so launchavacs and gyroscopic um, uh, manoeuvres um, and in fact it's really exciting this year we've been working with Gerald Cooper so he's our first pilot who's not been in the um, in the Red Arrows but uh, the reason we picked him is because he's actually national champion at unlimited aerobatics and he's been top six in the world for the last five years so this guy is incredible at flying individual manoeuvres so we're teaching him formation and in return he's teaching us some m uh, more exciting individual manoeuvres which is quite good. 
So could you name all the pilots on the team at the moment? Yeah, so we've got Andy Evans and he's Blade 1. And we've got um, Blade 2, and I'll tell you next year's teams, is going to be uh, me and James McMillan sharing that position. Blade 3 next year is going to be Mike Ling, who everyone will remember as Red 10. Um, and then we've got Gerald Cooper as number 4 and also James McMillan. So they'll sort of share that space. So do you get to inspire a lot of young, uh, younger generation aviators in the making? I hope so. <laughs> uh, well, when we go we get to air shows, we always try and get on the ground and do some PR as well, and we always get such a great response. I think people are interested because we're ex-Red Arrows pilots, and it's hard these days to actually get to go and meet the Reds, so we're a way for people to come and talk about the Red Arrows. Um, but also, I think they like to see the show because it's so kind of crazy manoeuvres, and also because we actually will fly passengers. So we say that in our um, commentary, you know, if you'd like what you've just seen, you can come and fly with us at Cywell and we, and we fly people through some of these manoeuvres which people like. So um, I think there's a lot there that we are quite um, tangible. People can come and meet us um, and we're not sort of hidden behind closed doors or anything. So yeah, I, I hope we do inspire people. We get a lot of very positive response from us, definitely. Brilliant. And where can our viewers find the Blades online? Uh, we're on theblades.com and you can Google us and we're also on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. So, Kirsty, do you have any hobbies? Um, I had a lot of hobbies, and then I had a child <laughs> and a full-time job, and that got rid of some. But um, no, I've always loved the mountains, actually. So anything in the mountains, whether it's walking, mountaineering, climbing, uh, mountain biking, that's what I love to spend my spare time doing. My son's a little bit too small to be climbing mountains with him at the minute, but hopefully that's, we'll be able to get back to it soon. Yeah. So do you have a favourite aircraft you've flown? I get asked this a lot, and I... It's really difficult to pick one out. I've got such fond memories of the Hawk for the Red Arrows, but also all the QFIing I did. Um, but like I say, the Tornado was designed for such a different thing and I felt so sort of invincible in it, which is exactly how I needed to feel. And then nowadays flying this is just insane. So um, I think possibly this aircraft, mm. but I would say it's like really borderline between all three. It's all difficult, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> Is there an aircraft you wish you could have flown that you haven't? Well, I always wanted to fly the Jaguar, um, and I, I had luckily managed to get a backseat trip, so I have been in one and flown around at low level, and it was as brilliant as I thought it was going to be. So um, I wouldn't quite say I regret not getting to fly it, but I do wish I had. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously I would love to fly a Spitfire, mm-hmm. goes without saying. So are the team active over the winter months? Yeah, so it's a, it's a full-time job, but obviously in the summer we're so busy doing air shows, and now we haven't got any air shows to do. But we do um, corporate days, so we have passenger flying, and um, people come and pay and we take them through all aerobatics which is great fun um, but also we also have a sort of an events organising cell um, so in the winter that's when we do a lot of our big planning for our big projects that are going to happen next year so we work with um, some of our sponsors so we do quite a lot with Aston Martin um, and yeah and I sort of act as a go-between between the stuff that happens on the ground whether it's marquees or, or whatever needs planning but also linking the aviation in and often cars into driving up and down runways and how are you going to get cars onto runways and aeroplanes and how's that going to work so I'm quite busy in the winter organising lots of events. So busy all year round. Yeah, it's good. Brilliant. So can we find yourself on social media? Yes, you can. I'm at Kirsty Murphy 18 on Twitter. And finally, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? Never, actually. I'm very passionate about it. I love it. It's obviously been my life. I've been a pilot um, for 20 years now. Um, and if I can talk passionately about it to other people who are passionate about it, then, yeah, I can sit in the bar and talk all night long if you want. Brilliant. Well, Kirsty, thanks very much for being on the show. It was a pleasure to meet you. Thank you.